Hey, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. In many ways, experience design can be thought of as a new field in terms of the work that's being done and how it has become focused on and prioritized in companies and across different business sectors. It's kind of like the next new thing. But in other ways, I mean, there's really nothing new about designing experiences when you think about it at its core. Experiences have always been designed and delivered throughout human history. But perhaps what is different about today is this awareness and intentionality behind experience design, the way people are thinking about it purposely and not just designing without thinking, recognizing what makes up experiences and then moving toward creating carefully curated experiences has become the hallmark of this larger experience design movement. But, you know, to what end are we doing all of this? What is the purpose of doing experience design? Are we just trying to increase bottom line revenues and profits? Are we trying to create better outcomes beyond profitability? How about creating more equitable environments or more just environments? Perhaps through our experience designs, we are trying to affect some kind of positive change through the interactions that we orchestrate, the environments that we construct, and the perceptions that result from these things. Or maybe, you know, not to think too limited, maybe we're trying to do all of the above and we're trying to do it all at the same time. Yeah, it's a good, a good set of questions. Um, and to help us answer those, we are diving in today and we're excited on Experience by Design to welcome Michael Kirkpatrick of Centric Park. And Michael has a long career as a designer. He's been worked as an executive vice president of client experience and strategy at Mad Pow before starting his role at Centric Park and working and serving as CEO. Uh, so he's had a ton of, of kind of experience and roles across different uh, parts of organizations and you know began his career as a graphic designer and now moving up to, to you know current role as CEO. He's seen all aspects of design work. So he's really well positioned to help us think through these bigger questions of what is experience design for? And it's we find with, with you know Michael, his perspective that this it's wide ranging and this is really what drives his passion for good design and creating sustainable change. And so we talk not just about design in this case, but how do we use experience design to transform business, transform outcomes, things like how can experience design like needs how do we make them to be more human-centric, right? And the more kind of activities that are really radically centered around what's best for the users and the folks that are involved in, in the services, products, offerings that we're designing. And taking a systems perspective, this really requires the designer to have uh, things like ethnographic noticings, getting stakeholder input, you know, bringing designer vision to play to help achieve these broader goals. And first and foremost, we can think about these, including things like designing products that will really help people actually, you know, bring about that sustainable change we're hoping for. And importantly, we're going to finish off the conversation, or at least somewhere in the conversation. We'll be talking about the age of CD-ROMs when maybe I some of our those. favorite games, right? Yeah. I remember when we first got our, I got our first CD-ROM as well. So we'll definitely be diving a little bit about gaming in the age of CD-ROMs. And the other big challenge is Monopoly and Risk are just really tough games to finish. Never finished one. Yeah. I don't, I'm, yeah, I'm not, I may have finished Monopoly once in my life. <laughs> It's a very yeah, dark period. Not a thing. 
Start so we time. covered a lot of territory, covered a lot of ground, and it was really fun to connect with Michael around his past work and his work with Centric Park, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. I wish I wish I had training in how to do this. Unfortunately, I don't. Just a lot of YouTube videos. Yeah, you can. YouTube will teach you anything. It's it will, awesome. It will make you think you know how to do anything. Whether or not you yeah. can actually do that thing, that's a whole other matter. Like I can go on there and look yeah. at how to fix a car. Doesn't mean I can actually fix a car. But I can, for that yeah. moment, believe I have the capability of doing it. That's true. Confidence. Well, I, you know, it's, I think there's something around design around that as well, right? Because it's, it's design is so ubiquitous and there's so much out there about design and human-centered design and experience design that it can give everyone the feeling that they can do it, but can they do it, right? I mean, I, I, I try yeah. to stay away from being provincial and saying, no, you can't do this. It's, a, it's very complicated mm-hmm. and you're not smart enough, right? Two... Anybody can do it. You just have to want to. So I don't know, given all your range of experience, how you think about there's an actual thing to what you do versus um, anybody can do it if you just want to do it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, like sports is maybe a good metaphor because, you know, I guess as, as much as I want to play for the NBA, I can try and watch as many YouTube videos. I can work out. It's probably not within my capability. So there's definitely something to uh, limitations. However, I would say probably more often than not, folks put limitations on themselves mm. uh, that are far below their actual limitations. So I do think with design that it's a pretty accessible field. I think if you have a passion for it, that means something. There's a reason for that. That's how I got into it. Uh, I tell my kids if there's something you find yourself gravitating towards, that's that's something universal telling you that uh, you might have a talent there. And um, so I, I, I do think that it's an accessible field. I do think you need a talent for it is helpful. And I guess the talent, I was just talking to somebody about this today. Uh, you know, empathy is a word that's overused in right. our uh, our industry, but it's certainly, there are people that have more, of an empathy uh, mindedness and uh, disposition. And I think if you have that naturally, you certainly can bolster that. Uh, It'll help you in this field because you'll design products by truly thinking about the people using the product and then you'll have a better design, certainly augmented with research and, and, uh, and talking to the folks you're designing for. Was this when you, when you you and your wife were sharing an apartment in Newburyport, was this always the plan? to open up your own experience design agency? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, sort of, yes. Um, you know, we, you know, I started as a graphic designer. In fact, one of my very first jobs, I think it was technically my first job. I was still in school. My first job sort of as a uh, designer. So not, you know, uh, waiting tables does not count. Um, I worked at Newburyport Press, which was not too far from here. It was the... I feel like I'm, I'm dating myself here. It was like the dawn of the stone age when computers were making their way into uh, the print shops. Uh, so it was the first time computers and technology was sort of meeting up 
with, uh, with art and design. And, uh, and so I worked there and I loved it. And I, I didn't then imagine myself uh, sort of going in an entrepreneurial route, yet only three or four years later, I did open a small LLC sort of side hustle thing um, and uh, was doing some graphic design for some local companies here. I hooked up with a local packaging company and literally what they needed was uh, logos recreated uh, from up, they would give me a bag and they would say, we need to uh, create film so we can, we can run um, a load of bags here. And so I learned a lot about using Adobe Illustrator and typography and lots of other things. So yeah, it wasn't really the plan necessarily, but it's sort of, I've always been a pretty entrepreneurial person and I've certainly been thinking about this, uh, this venture for quite a while, many years. With the graphic design element, right, you know, it seems, how does that inform your approach to experience design versus people who might have other kinds of trainings, which might be more, not that graphic design is technical, but maybe more technical or technological versus people who might approach it in a different kind of way? How do you find graphic design influencing your approach to experience design versus others? It's a good question. I don't think I've ever really thought too deeply about that. But as you as you asked it, you know, I I, I use a lot of analogies, and, and I think you know, music is a great analogy to the kind of work that uh, we do in experience design. And it's almost like graphic design. You know, my first instrument it was graphic design. So as a result, um, you know, I tend to focus really closely on things like you know, the, the balance and composition of a, of a layout within a product design or the UI, I really go to the interaction between the UI and the typography and, and um, you know, color choice, um, contrast levels, that kind of thing is sort of naturally what I tend to focus in on. But over the years, <clears throat> I've picked up a broader view of experience design and design in general. And so it's almost like my first instrument was piano. So I tend to really know a lot about that part, Right, right. but we're writing music. So there's way more to it than just that. So, and I bet others that maybe started in, in other areas, a lot of folks start in the research area. I bet they have, they tend to find themselves gravitating to more of that insight driven mindset. So it's a bit of a curse having a graphic design background because there's a lot of bad design. I mean, there's a lot oh, of bad websites. I, I mean, I don't know if you're able to turn that part of your brain off. No, uh, but you know, doing doing like work and customer experience or something like I do. It's like you walk into some place and you go, you know, I just can't. I just can't. I, you know, no one else might notice. I notice, and I just yeah. fixate on that thing. So as you go around, just in your life, going around to websites and looking at different design, you must must be a challenge to be used sometimes. Yeah, you can't, if you're really into it, you can't turn that part of your brain off and you kind of don't want to. You, uh, I was in Miami with my son uh, in the spring and we were, I, I had to go to the front desk and I went to the front desk and I saw that the way that they were dealing with this rush and guess what time it was? It was like near three o'clock check-in. Um, so there's this big line and I looked at behind the counter and saw there were two people there were three total people. One person was dealing with customers directly. Right. The other had a phone to their ear. Okay. And the third person was just standing by. Sure. And uh, I was just like, I couldn't help but notice. I was sort of flummoxed at 
how, how is that the right design for this? Uh, and so, you know, I can't help but ask questions. I started talking to the, front <laughs> desk. I talked to the people in front of me. They, they were really frustrated. I said, yeah, I, I don't understand why they're doing that. I told them what I do for a living. I said, I can't. And, uh, and, and, and so when I got to the front desk, we had this conversation. And what I learned was that the person standing by was the manager yep. who was ready to be deployed if there was an issue. But with no issues, they stood idle. The line wasn't thought, an issue. Wow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a flawed design. Like, why not have them active until they're, you know, it's like, but in, in the, the third person was on the phone because they get a lot of uh, uh, reservations that come directly in. And it's like, you know, to your point, I can't turn that off. I see it everywhere. Uh, I enjoy it, though. It doesn't it, it you think of it as a curse, but it it almost makes you better because you're constantly looking at those details. And right. thinking, What would I do here? How would I consult with the folks that run this here? So I enjoy it. It, may, it makes me think like an issue for whom? Right. You know, we're all in line. There's a long line. And I see you standing there and you're waiting for issues. And that tells me that you don't think that this line and us waiting and, and seeing you standing there as we're waiting is an issue. Right. And, you know, I don't it's, know. Not, it's not How an issue for it? that person. They seem to just fine uh, but for the rest of us standing right. in line, you know? So I think it's, it's an interesting question about how, how does one notice an issue? How does right. one see it's an issue? One of the things that I often tell my students to do is, uh, but I, it's like a trigger warning. It comes with a trigger warning walk around your house or apartment as if someone's going to come over and visit mm. and all the crap or like, you know, or if you're going to sell your house, all the crap that's everywhere just pops. And the question right. becomes, why didn't you see that before? Right. That it's just so you have to look at it through someone else's eyes right. in order to see the mess because they're, well, been, you know, yeah. Well, it's like you were saying earlier and just in terms of, um, being, you know, this industry being accessible to anyone, you know, it, it does always surprise me when I see somebody working in a service-based or customer-centric business, one that is, you know, very, very frontline uh, uh, service-oriented, but yet they aren't thinking about what those people are thinking. And so back to that person standing there who didn't see the line as an issue, they also ignored this instinct that I couldn't, I couldn't possibly ignore. If I was them, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't be able to help but notice right. and then call an audible to, to address, you know, this really long and growing line of, of uh, fatigue and angry people. But some people, I guess, just don't have that sense or haven't developed that. And you see that. I'm sure you deal with it all the time when you're out in the, in the world. Um, people that just don't have that muscle it's just not in them and they're probably it's probably less accessible in industry and a craft for those kind of folks i would think i think i think a lot of people are just especially in their jobs are just trying to get by i was i just uh had was out of internet for three days and a long really long story but uh, as i was trying to use the verizon phone tree to get somebody all, all i really want all anybody wants is to speak to somebody on the phone right ever and I just, I had to go through this horrible phone system and try to mash numbers and pound signs to try to see if I could, you know, hack the system to get a person. And when I got a person, finally, uh, I talked to the person about the phone system and she says, yeah, everyone hates it. 
<laughs> we we hate it. You hate it. Nobody likes it. But yet there it is. And we have to deal with it because yeah. now when I get a person, I'm already primed to be irate. And, right. th- and that person on the phone did nothing. But the, right. the irony of it is everyone knows it adds no value, really. But yet there it is. Yeah, it's they're they're constantly if you, you read any of the experience, you know, customer experience uh, reports, uh, utilities always rank very, very low. And right. uh, and it's almost, you know, it goes to show culture is such a, a strong driver in experience design because it's just a culture that has been reticent to change. And uh, I'm, I'm never sure why. I, you know, when we just we just opened this office up in Newburyport. I had to get Internet uh, here. I, I tried to get by sort of using the hotspots and they just couldn't do it. And so same thing. I ended up calling and I only called when I had an issue with the setup. I tried to do it all independently with the app, all the things they told me to do. Right. And the first thing the person said to me was, um, you got your information. Uh, have you tried the flex box? It's got, uh, streaming services. Uh, we have all the latest apps you can download and she went on and on and on and I let her finish. And, and like you, I can't help, but you know, I said, can we just take a pause on this call for a second? <laughs> I said, I said, it is as if I said, I know my wife used to work for Verizon and, and, uh, I used to hear all the stories and, and I, I, so I do have sympathy for the role because it is hard. And many of the cu- cu- customers coming in are irate right. to begin with. And I, I sort of stepped outside of the phone call with this person. Right. I said, I didn't ask you to do this, but does it make sense to you? I said, it's as if I came into the store and I'm returning something. And before you acknowledge that, you're talking about all the other great things I'm I can sorry. buy. You know, and yeah. it's like, she, was, she said, yeah, I know. And what it, what it really comes down to is with... With millions of customers, I can see the mindset in the in the boardroom. They say, you know, it's probably not going to work, but if it works one percent of the time, right. you know what? Let's just try it. If right. it works point zero one percent, look at the revenue. And it's you know, this the challenge is being a public company is you you have to continue to drive growth. You have to continue to drive revenue and in performance. Uh, in in unfortunately that fights against, you know, common sense and experience design quite often. There was a company I was working with to redesign their call center training program. And I was listening, I asked them, I said, I need a bunch of your phone calls so I can listen to them and analyze them. And so what, one of the things that popped out right away, and this isn't like, you know, really smart PhD stuff. This is, oh my God, this is so obvious stuff is at the very end of every phone call, regardless of whether or not the problem was addressed and solved, the workers had to say, is there anything else I can help you with today? Well, if you didn't help mm. me with the first thing, that's a really great opportunity for the person to re-complain <laughs> about right. why are you asking me this when you didn't help me with that? And I asked right. the call center workers about that and they said, yeah, we, we know it's ridiculous, but uh, we have to follow this. And if we don't follow this, then we're penalized. And yeah. it, it's just, it's you know, again, it's, the, the business culture, the business process, he's not letting people be human and yeah, do what right. they know will work. Well, you know, there is hope, though, because, uh, you know, I've, I've done a, a lot of work with call centers and, and Center Park recently did some uh, engagement uh, where we were uh, speaking to some call center representatives. And, and I have to say, not just listening to calls, but if you've ever had a chance to sit in a call center and right. watch a person work, uh, I did that for 
uh, USAA, a financial services client of ours. And um, what I was amazed at was the employee experience was right. undesigned. And right. so when I watched them work, they were moving things from screen to screen and they were you know, referencing stickies uh, on the desk. And I was really amazed that they were having this fluid conversation like we're having. But meanwhile, it was, you know, yeah. the, the legs under the water were moving as they were sort of uh, pulling things up and trying to get information to answer questions. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, it's an interesting, you know, experience is everywhere and experience design is everywhere. I found that the employee experience side of those call centers is often very neglected in terms of design. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. There was a really great book. We actually had her on the podcast. Um, that was, I believe, if I remember the name, the name of the book, it was um, Off the Clock. I'll, I'll look it up. But she basically went through and did three jobs. It might have been oh, called yeah. On the Clock. And one of the jobs was in a call center. One was at a McDonald's and one was at an Amazon Fulfillment okay. Center. Sure. And, you know, that book was fascinating because one of the things we like to do with ethnography, especially workplace studies, is you've got to go to the site where the activity is taking place to understand the competencies that people are deploying to do the jobs and mm-hmm. not, not just the job description, but the actual competencies. What do they right. do that allows them to be successful? And then often how they do processes and, and models that managers think about interfere mm-hmm. and how the system's not designed to support that. So I really love that example. And I'm jealous, quite frankly, that, you know, that you had a chance to go hang out in a call center because I get really excited. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a work geek. I get really excited when I'm able to watch people work in their environments because I just find it the most fascinating thing in the world. Yeah, me me too. I'm I'm the same way. I remember very early in my career, there was a presentation I sat on. Yeah, I'm sure you've if you've ever seen some great uh, strategy or, or uh, you know, material, you know, like a presentation deck, it, it sticks with you. And I, I do remember there was one about the power of that observation. And it was, I don't remember the entire story around it, but the, the kernel of it that I loved, th- they were in a coffee shop and they showed that folks were dumping the coffee out right. and then putting sugar in, right? Yeah, and, exactly. And right. everyone does that. And right. they said... And the gist of it was that's meaningful to us. We're, that's what we're seeing. And then we're designing for that uh, situation. It was one of those things that I think everybody can relate to. And ultimately what it is, is experience research that turns into experience strategy and experience design. And, and uh, never forgot that example. I, and the power of, like you said, the power of just watching what people are doing and paying attention to how things work and the undocumented truths uh, can be really fun to share, uh, especially with an executive crowd. Uh, You know, we were able to share, you know, some, you know, we showed, I remember showing a usability study and we were trying to characterize that this application really needed help. It was a student loan company. And, um, and I remember there was a, uh, you know, it was a kid that was in college. So, you know, in his twenties and he was trying to go through the application and what we asked him was, you know, how's the experience? And he said very polite things, he, you know, which is very common, right. right? It's like, Oh, it's not bad. I can't. <laughs> and he was blaming himself. I think I did this wrong. Right. You know? But as he was going through it, I remember he sat back in his chair and he was doing this. He was like, <laughs> he was so annoyed. Clenching his hands, rocking back and forth. Charts. 
And, you know, just observing that and then sharing that with folks at the executive level was even more powerful than, you know, the report that came out that, that you know, gave some pithy quotes that characterized what was going on. You know, it's just that body language was strong. For years, I, I had a bunch of friends who worked at the Palo Alto Research Center, and they're all sociologists, and they're all trained in this thing that I'm trained in, which is called workplace studies. And they would go mm-hmm. to work sites and they would record videotape, not just screens, mm-hmm. but activity and practice and even engage, if possible, in doing the work themselves and sure. to experience the work from the perspective of those doing the work as a competent practitioner. And right. then being able to make that next step which is now bring that understanding, that meaningfulness into design, Mm. right? Because not only design for the customer, but as you said, to make the employee world better. Right. To connect those two things. I do think it's interesting. I was talking with someone the other day and they were talking about where does employee experience, you know, employee experiences and human resources. I said, that might be the, the last place it should be actually. Because yeah. then it becomes about, you know, paint nights and stuff like that and That's not right. thinking about how it engages in work and connects to other kinds of experience like the customer experience. Yeah. Best, Best Buy did a, uh, they hired a, a person to focus on employee experience that came from more of a, a consumer base uh, background. And he really pushed that culture quite a bit. You know, they used to, at the beginning of the bring your own device um, transition. So they started allowing their employees to use their own devices to look things up. And they had policy around that and technology. Um, you know, technology was all set up for security and all that. But they would deploy apps for these employees. And then they would deploy a binder that helped them use the apps. And he asked one question of the, the leadership. He said, would we ever release a consumer app that came with a manual? <laughs> and everyone said, of course not. You know, of course, why is our mindset different when it comes to designing for employees? And it's strange. It's like it shouldn't be any different. So he really helped push them to that more consumer mindedness. Um, so, you know, there's there's pockets of success, you know, on the call center side, T-Mobile, you mentioned getting to a person, how important that is. Sometimes they did a really, you know, and they're they're a telecom, right? So they're in that sort of not very loved category. And, um, but they were really smart. They changed fundamentally how the routing works when customers called in. What would typically happen is it's a round robin setup where uh, you're routed to the least busy. Uh, And this has probably changed a bit during COVID because lots of folks had to do this remote uh, thing, but ultimately you're being routed to who has availability and capacity. Um, And what they changed was they said, well, wait a minute, what if we kind of take two things into consideration? One is we kind of create like a regional team and you're routed to a regional team. And so you could call and get the same person a second time. Like, wouldn't that be better? And of course it's better. It's infinitely better. Uh, You don't have to start over. Like, I think I've talked to you before. How, How floored would you be if you called Verizon and you got to the same... It would seem like you won the lottery in a weird way. <laughs> like right. It, it's right. And and because they did that, it really changed the customer experience. And you're seeing T Mobile uh has has just outperformed uh all the other competitors because they started thinking about things much differently and, and challenging the way you've always done it. Um so there is hope. 
there was reminds me of when I went to go get my teeth, you know, just cleaned at the dentist. Yeah. And the, the, the dental tech comes in and she says, how you doing? Good. How are your girls doing? They're doing, they're doing well. Yeah. They're, they must be, you know, getting older now. Right. I mean, you know, going into, you know, da, 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 whatever. Right. She's making a small talk. And I went, and I'm just like you, I stopped the interaction. <laughs> I said, you see a lot of, I see you once a year or maybe twice a year. Yeah. How did you remember that? And she's like, well, actually I wrote it down in your chart that you had kids. I okay. That's interesting. Why did you do that? Because, you know, I want to personalize and make you feel comfortable and you know, that I know you. Okay. Does your chart charting system, your charting software have a space in it to do that for family information? She goes, no, no, I just put it in the notes. Did mm-hmm. anybody teach you to do that in dental school, <laughs> dental hygienist school? <laughs> no, no, no. That just something I just, I just learned on my own. I'm like, that's just yeah. genius Yeah. because you know, it costs nothing to do. Right. She's found it herself. She's ad hocing the software to make it work for her, like a CRM almost. Right. And, and, you know, if I was designing a system, I could scale that kind of practice by make, maybe making it a designated, a designated line or space in the CRM and the, in the EHR system. So people start thinking about doing it more. Right. Right. Like, That's just flipping genius, but it goes back to this point of perceived personability. <laughs> Yeah. And relationships. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I would say she's a good candidate if she wanted to change careers. She has a good she's a good candidate for having the the stuff that makes great experienced designers. You know, she's already thinking about your experience. And uh there is a kind of a line there, I guess, in terms of authenticity that I think is important. And it sounds like she did have a good instinct for you know, it wasn't faux interest. At least you didn't reflect that it's felt fake. No. Um, you know, she remembered these details. She probably recalled, oh, I remember this guy. I, you know, I remember I remember talking to him. And she's she probably, you know, she asked you at one point about your kids. So maybe some of those details came back to her. You know, I, I, as long as there's that sort of genuineness that is there. So it isn't, you know, reading from an EHR to say, hey, I see that you... See, you're doing marathons, you know, where you have right. Boston, you know, where it's, you know, those can those can go awry uh, when, when implemented wrong. Or if, like, you know, before you came in, I started, I stalked you on Facebook. I looked at your photos. I noticed, you know, <laughs> that might be a little creepy if you would have said, right. well, you know, I, I got your social security number from our system and I was looking <laughs> you up, you know, I might be flattered, yeah. but a little freaked out at the same time. So it felt appropriate yeah. just that was just yeah. from a, from a previous visit, but it, it is it would take a lot for me to then get really upset to say, you don't know me. That's all fake. I mean, I, I guess there's yeah. always some people who would be like that, but for I think most of the people, you can't design for everybody. You can't design to please everybody. And it's, you know, there's an effort to at least, at least make you feel comfortable and familiar. Right. Like you're not just a patient. We're just kind of shuttling through here as fast as possible. I, I do have to say, as cranky as I get about those bad experiences in the world, and I say, what are you all doing? Why? And I, I almost feel like I, I, I stopped myself just short of con- contacting the CEO to say, we've got to fix this. I can't help it. As many of those, I definitely have the good experience. And I try to give folks, if I see people are trying, that goes so far with me. If you're trying to deliver a great experience and you're thinking about it, if you don't get a perfect, that's okay. It just shows that your mind 
you know, your mindset's right and your heart's in the right place. And there's so many that aren't even trying that right. you got know, to give credit to at least the folks that are giving it a shot. Yeah. In your past work and now your work with Centric Park with your clients, do you find that different companies in different industries are primed in different ways to, to deal both with the intent? We want, we want to fix this. We want to do better, but not just the intent, but the actual accomplishment of it. Because I also think, and you would know more about this from your own work at Central Park, that the intent to have these conversations, to hire a consultancy, is very different than at the actually doing it and right. implementing, implementing recommendations, suggestions, or ideas. Yeah, it's, um, it's a good, so maybe taking it in two parts. Right. Uh, the industry lens on experiences is definitely very, and I will say, you know, I've done a lot of work in financial services and, and still doing a lot of work in the financial services space. And that's a mixed bag. I would say there's some that are, you know, I mentioned USAA earlier. They're a uh, member-driven organization. They're still privately held. They're mutual and, and, you know, they're not a publicly owned company at this point. And, as a result, you know, they're convincing them that uh, the member experience is important. It's like they're already there. But there's other financial services organizations where it's almost the opposite, where uh, other things are driving the business. And, you know, you'll, you'll hear questions like, you know, what's the, what's the ROI on this experience design initiative? And uh, that's when I know it's going to take a little bit more consensus building to get people to see things they may not notice or see currently or may not think are that all that important to the business. So that's just within that industry. And I will say step outside of financial services, healthcare, you know, same kind of thing. Although I have seen, you know, maybe more focus there, um, you know, over the years, I know healthcare has gotten a lot of attention uh, over the last decade or so. There's still so much to do to improve that. And it's such a, a wicked problem, as a friend used to call it, right. which I think was aptly described. Uh, uh, so, you know, I think some industries are more primed. Uh, others are uh, more reluctant, need to be more won over or see success and understand the impact it might have. Uh, and then, you know, to speak to maybe, you know, the, the second part in terms of, you know, making things that, that drive change, that actually committing to things that actually do something within the business rather than are just an exercise, uh, you know, in futility. You know, I think that's always a challenge. I, it's such a, you know, centric park, you know, I was, I was, uh, I've been in the agency world for a little while and, and, and it's a reputation driven business in my opinion. And so I can't help but feel like if we don't do work that really drives change and is implemented, then, you know, that's not success for me. Other agencies don't think about it that way. I will say other agencies are happy to, um, happy to let these organizations be dysfunctional and, and it made me feel like it's too hard to try to influence that or change that. Right. But to me, you know, I, I kicked off a, a, an engagement about eight weeks ago that's just starting to come come in for a landing. And, uh, you know, we did an exercise at the top where it's like, what could go wrong? Hopes and fears. Like, what do you, what do you think could go wrong? And there are a few of the executives that said, uh, we've done this kind of thing before. It was a journey mapping exercise. And they said, we've done this kind of thing before. 
and it didn't go anywhere. Right. Uh, we still have the work. It's around here somewhere. And uh, it, it didn't really, it didn't really do anything here. And I took that really seriously. And I think we have referenced back to that moment multiple times during the engagement so that we make sure we, as a group, commit to this work needs to continue after I'm done. This is a process. It's not just a deliverable. And so I think some organizations can handle that uh, and other organizations want to handle that, but the odds are stacked against them. It's uh, it's pretty varied out there. The ROI question is always an f- interesting one because I guess we could ask the the ancillary question, which is, if it was more profitable to treat your customers horribly, would you be doing that? <laughs> That's a nice turnaround question. I, I like that. I'd love to, love to see what happens. You know, it's like, that. well, what's the ROI on treating our customers better? Yeah. I don't I mean, is that there is, number one, but number two, yeah. let's say the return on investment wasn't as big as the one that is treating your customers and workers horribly. We tried that in the 80s, right? Right. Uh, so would you be doing that? And if they say yes, then you have a bigger problem, which goes yeah. back into like a shareholder versus stakeholder mentality. Right. You know, when, when I first started teaching at my school, all my students would tell me is it's the primary responsibility of the CEO to maximize shareholder uh, value. You know, Chicago school stuff versus mm-hmm. now moving into this stakeholder space, which is no, the, the job of the, of the, of the business is to do good, not just for itself, but for others around it, because it's part of the fabric of that society, of that community, of yeah. that world. Yeah. I, I used to have a colleague that um, I said this jokingly and he, he loved it enough to tease me about it for years. But I, I used to say the way I think of it sometimes is almost like asking like, what's the ROI of a hug? Oh, okay. never asking that question. You know, it's like, because that's a ludicrous question. The and, world's and I, oldest profession is the ROI of a hug. <laughs> I, so, you know, I guess my point is that, um, you know, some of the experience design change that has to happen in large enterprise organizations is kind of the long game because you're trying to build loyalty. And, you know, what's going to ultimately make customers love you is all it, it, it most of it lies within this domain of experience design. Unfortunately, if it's a publicly owned company, it's often driving to the next earnings call. And that's not a long-term strategy. It doesn't mean companies aren't focused on... It doesn't mean public companies aren't focused on experience design or can't focus on it. But there's a lot of things that are are pulling them away from that. And the job they have to drive value... Uh, with shareholders uh, immediately, and there's been so much written about this, really works against some of some of those longer programs that are more cultural, right. really changing the mindset of employees so that the experience for customers becomes uh, totally different um, and better. You know, it's it's um, it's hard. It's a hard thing. You know, I don't. Uh, I'm often the person that's connecting what we do to the business and reminding design teams that, you know, we're not just doing this uh, to have a great app. We're doing this because that app serves the business and serves customers. And here's how. And and I think if we can show that we have that astuteness for the business, it helps folks have the courage maybe to, to, uh, to take on some of these initiatives that are longer, longer plays. Yeah. Technology in the service of people is a nice idea. 
That that, that mm-hmm. sounds pretty good. And this is where right. I've you know when I've done research and looked at enterprise system implementations or design, one of the questions I ask is: Is the technology a tool or a determinant of work? Is it a tool mm-hmm. for work or a determinant of work? Is it meant to help people do their jobs better? Or is it meant to constrain people to do their jobs in a way that you want them to? And, and what's the balance between those? Because you can implement a, a system that really structures and impedes work by mm-hmm. limiting people's autonomy to make mm-hmm. decisions. And they can do skill work. And I've seen this with EHR systems even. Versus yeah. it's a it's a tool that allows people some flexibility um, and some agency to get work done. And right. often, it, it often it depends on how people are using the technology. And that's where, and I don't see organizations doing this much, is what I would do is, you know, talk about as a post-implementation analysis. Let's see mm-hmm. how people are using it. Right. And then work that learning back into the program of how we're envisioning the technology as part of the workspace. Right. Yeah, that's so innate to the two of us in terms of thinking about technology. But I'm sometimes surprised, you know, with, uh, you you know, there's an investment um, client that I remember we were trying to talk to them about the flow of work. Right. And how the technology is not really aligned to the way these guys Uh, work. So here's what they're doing. They're doing all these workarounds. Exactly right. And, And the way they were thinking about it was like, oh, no, we need to. And they went very feature driven. And, and what I learned was that their culture was their IT organization was extremely powerful and 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 had a lot of sway within the, the company. So all of the change that happened was very technology driven. And as a result, they were very feature-centered or very technical, technology-centric in their approaches. And they were almost ignoring what was happening with the people, you know, the analysis you're talking about post-implementation, instead what they would do is they would customize software for each individual rather than stepping back and saying, well, wait a minute, what, what's going on here? Um, So, you know, there's still a lot of that out there. I remember I was talking to a a health information manager at a hospital in new Mm -hmm. England and they were implementing an EHR system. This is many, many, many years ago. And I said, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to do any kind of post-implementation analysis to see how doctors are using it and the impact it's having? He's like, no, no, no. We're just, we're just hoping for the best. Like, well, that's, <laughs> that's nice. We're just, uh, you know, it's, we'll, light some, we'll, get, we'll light some candles. Uh, <laughs> maybe, you know, sacrifice something. I don't know what right, we're going to sacrifice. Right. And we're just going to cross our fingers and hope like hell everything yeah. doesn't collapse around us. And if it does, we'll pretend it's not. Right. Well... <laughs> Uh, don't forget that that project to get some of these technology systems out in the world at a hospital is the biggest thing they've done in five or 10 years. Right. right. And everyone falls. It's one of the most expensive things they've exactly done in five right. or 10 years. And everyone falls over the finish line and says, I never want to think about that again. We got it done. Right. That's it. And they don't realize there's more work to be done or there could be more work to be done to refine and tune in. They don't have the appetite for that, typically, is what I've found. Yeah, I do understand. You know, but I think it's also what you're talking about is how do we move experience design you know, into strategy? And I think about UX, uh, which yeah. is might have had, started off very much about cultural change, right? You know, mm-hmm. as a friend of mine said, the opposite of usability 
is uselessness, right? So we right. want to make things as useful as possible and being kind of shunted into a small part of the organization, which is around features and should the button be blue right. or red and not so much about strategy, more as like a, a afterthought or a checkbox. How do we kind of keep right. experience design from following in that path or like with customer experience, kind of being this nebulous thing, which no one quite knows what to do with or what it means, but we all think we should have it around. How do we kind of make experience design part of strategy and not just something that's secondary to what an organization does? It's a good question. I mean, it's, uh, and it's a hard one to answer. I'll be honest. You know, I think I take for granted sometimes. I, I think sort of everybody's thinking about these things, but then I am constantly surprised when I realize that experience design is not something everyone sees. And and uh, and thinks a lot about one thing that has helped, I guess, over maybe the last decade is companies like, you know, Amazon or Zappos or, you know, all the famous ones, JetBlue back in the day. I'm not sure about these yeah. days, but um, they were they were they were, they built a business and a culture around experience design and being very, very customer focused all the way into the operations. And, um, and that inspired a lot of other companies to, to do the same when they started seeing, oh, wait, uh, those, those companies are now performing, outperforming their competition and customers are willing to pay a premium, right. which that's been proven you know, in dozens of studies that, that folks will pay a premium for a better experience. So I think, I, you know, I have to believe those things in the world help people see the light to some extent. And I, I, I'll be honest, I've gotten tired of being the evangelist. You know, right. a couple of jobs ago, I was at an agency and, um, and found that I was evangelizing for user experience design. And uh, it's, it's tedious, man. I, you know, it's like, I'm at the point now where it's like, either you get it or you don't, um, which is tough. Yeah. And, you know, for those who get it, I think the point you're making with Zappos or Amazon, I was just doing some writing today on Mayo Clinic and the Mayo model of integrated care. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it wasn't until the 1990s that they actually created like the Mayo model. They, it was just something they did. Yeah. And then other places were like, wow, that's a thing. Integrated care where people are working on teams across silos and talking to one another. You know, how crazy is that? And right. there should be enough cases, business cases to demonstrate the importance of that kind of approach. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. Why people don't get that is puzzling and exhausting. <laughs> and sometimes there's forces that are working, you know, working against that uh, out of uh, out of the control of the folks that want to change and be in a more integrated, work in a more integrated fashion. You know, if you think about it, yeah, the unions are very strong in uh you know, take take uh, the entertainment industry, uh, where you may want to work a certain way together, but that's I'm sorry, you're not allowed to. You, right. you know, that's his job. And so sometimes there's, I think, these design constraints that have popped up that have prevented now some of the best experience. But that just is another place for design, right? It's constraints are constraints, and if you can design around them, you can you can find a way. But healthcare is a tough one. It's um, you know, when you have a system, at least they, they control sort of the whole organism, you know, from the insurance to the, right. you know, provisioning of care. Uh, you know, hospitals, I've worked with a lot of hospitals, uh, 
and especially some some independent community based hospitals, it's it's more challenging for them because they're beholden to uh, how the payers are going to uh, work with them and 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 how that entire reimbursement system works. And sometimes that just works against their, uh, you know, what they want to do uh, in terms of designing a better experience for patients. I mean, I mean, think about it, patients and families. I, I did a website for patients and families a long time ago. And I just remember thinking like, if you can't be motivated to create a great experience for people that are on their way into the hospital, I mean, it's, uh, you know, you, you, you should check your heart rate because you may not be, you know, put a, put a mirror in front of your mouth. Right. Uh, it's really, that's an easy one to be empathetic for because everything you do, every little thing you do to make it easier for them to find parking, you know, we, I remember we did some things like, um, you know, just places to stay locally because lots of, they, were, they had lots of folks that were coming to this part of the country to get a certain procedure that only they provided. And right. uh, all those little things go a long way. And even though they weren't able to create a, a Mayo model necessarily, you know, like I said, points for trying and really working hard to, to, to help folks. One of the things that you make me think about there is, you know, this idea of the experience ecosystem and thinking about the different levels of experience and going back to Mayo, I actually went out there to attend a workshop and what was, what floored me. And I actually talked to people just eating dinner or whatever about this that were around me was the way in which the entire town of Rochester embraces their role as part of the continuity of care for mm. patients that are visiting. Because mm. no, you know, who lives in Rochester, Minnesota? Not many people. I right. mean, just despite the lovely corn cob water tower they have, it's not this thriving metropolis. It's not like being in sure. Boston. People travel from everywhere to go to this place. Well, why there? And everybody from the airport, from when you arrive at the airport to the hotel, to having dinner, to getting your coffee, to your cab ride, everyone orients to themselves as part of that care continuum. Right. right. And it really is That's something to see about how that, that experience ecosystem is pervasive and all not intentionally designed, but organically emergent to try to help people get better. Yeah. That's a mindset, right? That's culture. They, they ultimately all have signed up for a shared consciousness and a mindset around, um, you know, the folks that are coming in and out of town. Disney, you know, reminds me of Disney in, sure. a, in a weird way where, yeah, yeah. you know, Orlando is all about Disney and it's important to that um, community. And, you know, I think people expect that they're going to see that tourism coming in and sort of react to it. Very different uh in terms of the reaction locally there, but kind of a similar shared consciousness, I guess. Except for that weird place off the interstate that has uh, alligator petting. <laughs> that place. Uh, it's like a bad idea. Yeah. That, that, that's a whole other thing. You stop at one of those. I can't, you know, it's going to be an experience. Yes. I, I just, I just can't tell you if it's going to be part of the Disney brand experience. I think it's right, going to be part probably. of the experience for sure. Right, not right. the Disney experience. So, yeah. so, so now with, with Centric Park, you know, just starting yeah. up recently, it was a great time to start during the pandemic. Yeah, so thanks. it was good timing. Um, how, what are the things now that you're looking forward to given the phone you launched to now where you're at in this new facility in Newburyport and the things you're taking on? Yeah. Um, it's been a great start. Thanks. Um, you know, we, have, you know, my business partner, uh, Brady Bonus, and I have been thinking about it since last fall and working on it, 
you know, we officially launched in January and then we've had just an amazing first year with lots of great projects and working with great designers and researchers and, uh, and clients. And so, you know, what, what I'm constantly thinking about, you know, we, we often say, you know, we're human centered in everything we do. And I really mean that. Um, what it means is that the way we approach uh, this space in Newburyport that we've opened up is really thinking about how might we rethink using physical space and, and taking advantage of the remote reality, remote working reality that we live in. How can we kind of put those together to create um, kind of a new thing, uh, a new best thing that is the best of both worlds? You know, you, you mentioned talking to people on a call center and, and people always, you know, you want to you get to a person. I agree with that, but... I certainly don't want to have to call in if I have to change my address. I'd love a nice, easy way to do that on my own on the, right. on the app or something, right? So, so now, now that we've kind of learned to work remotely really well, um, how does physical space now work? What do we want to use it for? And I think some of the early things we're thinking about are um, convening for collaboration. I think that's an obvious one. Maybe uh, sharing this space so others that are doing design work, maybe not for us, can come here and work and we can compare uh, war stories, uh, maybe teaching. We're talking to some people about hmm. teaching courses out of Fantastic. here. Fantastic. Yeah. So, you know, we're thinking about um, how do we deliver a new agency experience without saying that? Because if I tell you the agency business is a funny one, somebody every year says we've reinvented the agency business and it becomes a marketing slogan and is not often genuine. Um, you know, I think we do, though, really want to take advantage of the fact that we can recruit from, you know, the world. We're, we're focused on recruiting design talent from North America, primarily, uh, right now, and that's who's been working with us. So Canada and North America, uh, Canada and the United States. Um, and we can do that. We can work effectively in this new style, and we want to perfect that. We want to be really good at that. That's one of the things we're thinking about. But also, you know, when we bring people and teams together now, we've been using some uh, personality profiling, mm. which I have mixed feelings about, to be honest. I took a, um, uh, I, I think it was the Myers-Briggs, maybe a long time ago at, a, at, a, at an employer. Right. And I remember in a meeting, somebody used it in a very divisive way. They said, oh, you're so Jay. And they were like sort of calling somebody out. And right. it was like, how dare I you? Think, I don't think that's why we did that uh, personality stuff. I don't right. know why, you know, so, <laughs> uh, so I have feelings about it. Uh, it can be used for, for evil, but it can also be used for good. What we've found is that people ha have a certain work style right. that's, that's their default settings. And, uh, and what we're doing is we're testing for that. And then when we put those folks together, we have a tool that tells us like, these guys are going to be really good at this, like collaboration and idea generation. They're going to be amazing. Here's where they're going to get into trouble, putting that into action. So consider adding a project manager to that equation and gotcha. that might help. So, so those are some of the things we're thinking about future-wise that make teams stronger, uh, help them work better. Um, we're also trying to think about if everybody's remote, how do we connect every now and then in person, perhaps, if that's safe to do. Maybe we have a regional, you know, meetup 
Right. And we can actually see these people, these, these people in person, believe it or not. I mean, is that crazy? It would be crazy. I know. And then I, as I see people in person, I, 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 I wonder, do I want to see people in person still? <laughs> Being online sounds good. I, one of the questions, you know, as we wrap up, I saw uh, a lot of your experience on LinkedIn, but I'm really fascinated about Hasbro because oh, you're great. working for a toy company. I'm like, so mm-hmm. what, what was that all about? Did you get, did, uh, you, did you get paid in Play-Doh? Could you make your own money with the Play-Doh presses where you can make your own coins and things like that? Uh, man, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about those days. No, the equivalent of that was we had uh, a CD. It was the age of CD-ROM games just prior to internet gaming. And we had the key to the closet every now and then that we could go in and we could just grab like all these free games and we could bring them home. It was, it was like, it was awesome. Uh, it was, it was an awesome place. I worked for a guy, Tom Dusenberry, who was just a brilliant person. He's, he's still out there. I think he's, uh, he's got an entertainment based company now, but he was a visionary. And when you work for somebody like him, um, you know, every day is fun. And, and it's not just fun because it's Hasbro. It's fun because, you know, he thought about things like internet gaming. He did a, a thing called email games that was turn-based where you would send an email and you would get a turn and you would play Scrabble back and forth with folks. And, oh, wow. um, and there was chess and there were a couple others. And it was so ahead of its time. It was like he was doing Wordle and all these other things before uh for anybody uh he bought in a stroke of genius uh, you know the internet domain name squatting was a big thing so he said all right we've got to own a bunch of domains and he bought game.com and games.com and those went on to be just worth by themselves uh you know millions of dollars we were getting five hundred thousand people uh, a, a month going to those URLs with no content on them. So right. uh, it was an awesome place to work. I launched the very first monopoly.com, the very Did first really? Yeah. I, I remember working on graphics for risk and uh, GI oh Joe. God. And it's like, it was fantastic. I mean, it was great. I loved all those games and uh, I grew up with, you know, monopoly and, and, um, and Scrabble. And uh, it was it was awesome, man. It was putting those on the internet for the very first time. We built a Flash-based website, I remember, for Clue. It was like, wow, look what we did. We worked with an agency partner. It was like, so fun. Yeah, it was one of my favorite places. So have you ever actually finished a game of Monopoly? Yes, we play. I go to Love <laughs> Fleet every year and we play. My family plays and uh, it doesn't it's not the classic breaks out in a fight, right? But you know, I've been accused of making these deals that are lopsided, and it's not fair. And you know, <laughs> I get a sweetheart deal for my daughter, and my sure. son is furious. And so it is like capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, you know, I take advantage of the cronyism. That's right. You know, you know, my daughter's going to give me a deal. She's going out of business over here. Seems I right. <laughs> I, I, I like the game of risk, but it usually just ends up in a truce. You know what? Risk let's just, tough. let's just, yeah, let's just, let's just build a wall here between our countries and let's just call it a day. Risk is tough because often the end is pretty certain way before the end. So it's like a matter of time. It's like it, it's, it, it, it and then you're playing it all out is so tedious, but it is a great game. It's a good one to play. Uh, if you can play it online or, or on, on the, uh, the old CD game used to be good because you could, I felt like it went, it moved faster, but 
I guess that's not the point. They, we invented all these games so we could sit face to face and interact with each other in a new way. So I suppose that gets accomplished until we start yelling at each other for attacking armies in North Africa. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, part of the, the thing was the pastime, not to speed up time. And, <laughs> right, it, right. and if we're trying to actually make things go more quickly, are we really, are we really honoring the designer's intent? Or are we Probably trying not. to bring our new cultural values and in, and basically imprinting them onto design? Yeah, I I think I would fall out of my chair if I saw my kids playing a board game and we weren't in Wild Fleet. It's the only time we ever do it. I think it's like a lost. Uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of players. I should say, last place I worked at, there were a lot of gamers that lo- love board games, and you know, but it feels like it's lost on. On my kids, anyway. And then when you're up in wealthy, you're like, oh, we should do this more often. And as soon as you come home, you're like, oh, I don't know. Got something yeah. else to do. My cards. Cards is a good one. Cards is a good one. Cards is a good one. Well, it was, a, it was fun chatting finally and to hear about, you know, the Hasbro sure. days and the exciting things happening with Centric Park, the, the, the bookshelves behind sure. you, which I'm sure the next time we'll have a few more books. Although I do, I do agree the minimalist design. Is maybe maybe a lot of people who come in and use the space to have space that they could put their own books on. Yeah, I appreciate those ideas. I, I we'll do something, and yeah, and I it'll be it'll be organic, and I would yeah, I'd love it if maybe people gave suggestions or I don't I don't know, but minimalist, yes, we don't need to fill it with, with knickknacks. I can't stand. It's not going to be an Applebee's. With, uh, <laughs> lots of weird things to look at. We don't want that. Like no. a bike horn. That would right. be a classic Applebee's thing, I would think. Pieces of flair. You need pieces of flair. Going back to the Office yes. Space movie. Many, <laughs> many pieces of flair. Yes. Great, great point. Well, well this is great. I appreciate the invite, and I, I hope that was interesting. Oh, uh, it's all interesting. Thanks so much for taking the time. All right, my friend. We want to thank Michael Kirkpatrick from Centric Park for talking with us and taking us through his career experience design, the work of Centric Park, and how they achieve their goals of positive outcomes for people through design. Now, you can learn more about the work of Centric Park and how to get in touch with everybody over at centricpark.com. And of course, we'll have the links in our show notes as well. So, as always, we want to get in conversation with you too. And we're curious this week to understand, you know, what do you see as the purpose of experience design? Why do we, why do, we do this? What, what's, the, what's the point of this practice? What does it mean to actually be human or people centric, especially when we're looking at complex systems that involve a ton of other uh, inputs and arenas? And also importantly, have you ever finished a game of Monopoly or Risk? Nope. Uh, my my hypothesis is the number is going to be very low. So as always, shoot us a message over at feedback at experiencexdesign.com or get in the conversation on our LinkedIn page. And as always, thank you for joining us. We are happy, beyond happy, elated, thrilled to bring you content to stimulate your experience design thinking and your experience design doing. So thanks so much for making Experience by Design part of your podcast listening repertoire. And if you are an experienced design company or professional looking to increase your profile, please reach out to us to talk about sponsoring an episode. Or as always, you can show your support and appreciation by buying us a coffee through buy us a coffee link on our experiencexdesign.com site. 
And you can always share feedback at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. And if you want to subscribe and join the EXD community, head over to our website to stay on top of all the EXD news. And with that, as always, be safe, be kind, be well, and be here for the next experience by design.